0: So welcome to this week's episode of Coffee and Policy Chats, and I'm your host Ashley C. Uh, here we discuss public policy with noble and acknowledge that policy does not live in a vacuum. So it is not solely based off of politics. There are lots of things that go into it. It's very interdisciplinary. There are things like social science, smart science, and just go to a common sense that sometimes apply to as well as public opinion. Um, And today we're going to be talking about the omnibus bill that staved off another government shutdown. Uh, That seems to be something that frequently happens every day. So I hope you have your coffee. Um, I am drinking water right now because I had my coffee a little bit earlier and I'm very thirsty. (laughs) So I do have notes here, lots of notes because whenever I'm talking about something that's like policy related, I like to be very factual. Um, and it's a lot to try to memorize. I want to make sure that I'm bringing you guys the most accurate information that I can. I li- will link to all of my research in the show notes so you can go look it up yourself because the goal of this podcast and YouTube channel is basically just to educate you so you can make your own decisions. I, I just am somebody who studied this a lot. Um, it is part of my educational background. I have studied public policy um which is a social science and so I have learned to break this down in a way that makes it very approachable because I understand that most people do not have the time to go read these bills nor do they know how to read these bills because they are very long and convoluted and and figuring out and read some of these studies about certain policies that have already taken place um but I can do that for you and that is what I'm here for I am here to educate you I have um I am keeping all of my political beliefs out of it as much as possible there's just sometimes that politics just it is what it is it plays a part but i will be keeping myself very neutral so i don't want to make anybody feel like they have to look at one thing one way or the other i don't want to sway you i just want you to make the best decision for you and i want to give you those tools um so Before we get started on the main topic, which is that omnibus bill and talking about what's in it, I do want to present you with some quick bites. Uh, Quick bites are basically just little digestible policy bits um, that are more palatable. Uh, These are things that may or may not be on your radar, but they are interesting and sometimes they have... um, not been quite passed yet, or they're just being introduced into committee. So there's not a whole lot of information about them out yet. Um, But these are definitely things that maybe are not making your newsfeed or your sound bites for your preferred news sources. Um, The first one is Senate bill 5321, which was introduced on December 20th, 2022. We're only a few days out as of this recording from that. The bill, which like all Senate bills, it's a very long and wordy title but I will go ahead and give you part of it. Uh, It's entitled a bill to preserve Indian tribes and native Hawaiian organizations, autonomy to spectrum over tribal lands and to expedite immediate deployment of telecommunication services for critical government services, including national emergencies, national disasters, public health, and biohazard threats, safety, education, opportunity to participate in the broadband economy, self-governance, access to federal, state, and tribal voting elections, and the federal census count for the protection of life and property and furtherance of the federal trust responsibility and for other purposes. Whew. That was a mouthful. One moment. I have to like take a sip after that. That was... Quite a mouthful, but you'll find that a lot of bills are like that. Mm. You can almost read the bill and figure out exactly what it's about. Um, But it is important not to stop at the titles because there's usually more information inside the bill. Um, And I can do a whole episode on how to read a bill or just skip to the bill analysis, but this one does not have a bill analysis because it was newly introduced. Um, But this one was actually sponsored by Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren. Um, And it, it coincides with another bill that she also introduced around the same time. I think it was the 20th as well. I'll have to check for her, her website um, and the congress.gov website to see when that bill was actually introduced. But that particular bill was a bill aimed at, and it was called Making America Live Up to Its Promise, uh, to Native Americans. And it that bill was put in place to reform access to healthcare, education, eliminate food deserts, and allocate money for vital infrastructure in Native American and tribal lands, and Native Hawaiian tri- tribal lands. I'm sorry. So very clearly this is something on her mind because I think with the coronavirus pandemic and seeing how some of our poorest areas were hard hit, hard hit, um, by the coronavirus. And um if you think about some of the conditions on reservations and in some some of the tribal lands where they are living in third world conditions in the United States. This is happening today in the United States. There are people who do not have access to grocery stores. If they do have access, it's a very long drive, which means that they may not go as frequently. They may have to plan their trips around paydays so that way they can pay for the gas to get there. They don't have public transportation to get there. Um, they don't have access to health care close to their homes. So they may have to travel quite a bit to get to a healthcare care facility. Um, children may have to travel off a long ways to go to school. And I think... Probably what we take the most for granted is indoor plumbing. And there are some tribal lands where there are members who, residents who live there who do not have access to plumbing, to fresh water in their homes. They have to go get bottles of water. They don't have access to flushing toilets because they don't have the infrastructure because no, no money has been allocated for them to make the massive infrastructural improvements that are needed to provide them with these things. So I think that this is a topic that COVID really shone a light on and COVID also exacerbated it because while all of us were dealing with the impacts of it, imagine not being able to isolate in place because you don't have the basic necessities imagine not being able to get to a hospital emergency room when your loved one is short of breath or struggling. And then on top of that, imagine not having access. And I don't, I don't care what your view on vaccines are. Um, But the point is, is that is a healthcare decision that somebody should make and should be able to make. And And because public health really took the like the, the, they spearheaded public health agencies around the country had to spearhead our COVID-19 responses and also had to like lead the charge to get people access to vaccines. Um, there were challenges because there weren't roads in some of these areas. So I think that, um, I think that these are definitely necessary uh, at this time to be introduced. I will be interested to see what Congress does. I should say that it is currently been referred to committee. Um, the specifically S5321 has been referred to the committee on commerce science and technology. And there is no congressional budget office CBO. You'll hear me say CBO a lot, uh, analysis available for it currently because it's just recently been referred. Um, we'll have to see if this one gets heard. Later this year, or I mean in 2023, as we move through the year, um, as we know, policymaking is a very lengthy process and just because it clears committee does not mean that it will make it to the floor. Um, there's a whole process for how things make it to the floor. So, uh, I will keep you posted. I'm going to keep this one on my radar, see what happens with it. But I do think that, um, this one is definitely interesting and it is definitely, uh, a very, I would say a very interesting bill to introduce at this time period, especially since we know that, um, there are many marginalized communities in the United States and this has happens to be one of them and that they need, uh, additional assistance and they need additional light shine on them. Um, so I'll keep my eye out for this one and I'll let you know if there's any updates. Hopefully, We'll see some updates soon and hopefully we'll see a bill bill text analysis. But if you're interested in seeing the actual text of the bill and reading it for yourself, you can go to congress.gov and look up Senate Bill 5321 and click on the text link. Um, So you can read the full text yourself. I will link to that in my show notes because I know that that is a lot of information. Uh, Moving away from that, uh, looking at the state of Nevada, there is some big news in cannabis legislation like... Big, big news, big news. So if you are somebody who partakes and enjoys smoking, eating, whatever, (laughs) cannabis, uh, Nevada has some very interesting news for you. So in November, the state of Nevada, at least the Nevada Cannabis Compliance Board, approved and released the first list of prospective licenses for retail cannabis um, consumption lounges. So now you can, instead of having to go buy it at a, retail store and then taking it home or, you know, basically consuming, not in public spaces. The law now allows you to consume in these lounges. And obviously I do not recommend you smoking a joint on the strip because that is still not cool in Nevada. Uh, But they are allowing for lounges, like kind of like hookah lounges where you can go in and enjoy your edibles or you're smoking and relax, right? Um, and it's this, this is the result of Assembly Bill AB 341, which uh, was passed in 2021. Um, it was literally just the latest in a string of legislation that was very similar to try to get passed. But um, all the other legislation previously had failed. This time around, this one went through that is not at all uncommon in policymaking. Um, we, we see that, uh, happen quite frequently. Um, there's something called the sleeper effect actually (laughs) that describes this phenomenon where you keep trying, you keep trying, you keep trying, and maybe the culture is not quite there yet, or for whatever reason, there is no tolerance for that exact policy, but then someone else comes through and they get it passed and, uh, it's like wow, that person gets credit for it, right? Um, we saw this actually surprisingly with the um, American health, uh, American, I'm sorry, with our healthcare system, with the Affordable Care Act. I was about to say the wrong act. I I apologize. Um, where during the Clinton administration, actually, we started seeing this talk for healthcare reform. Um, And then, but there was no tolerance at that time for some of, because it was just too radical, some of the things that he was proposing. Um, One good thing that did come out of it is the Children's Health Insurance Plan CHIPS, which is very widely supported bipartisan, like normally in a very bipartisan manner. Um, We're once again becoming more polarized. So things that normally would be very broadly approved of bipartisanly are having difficulty getting to that middle ground again. Um, But anyway, Clinton, the Clinton administration brought forward a number of healthcare reforms. There was no tolerance for it. Then we saw Mitt Romney in Massachusetts release Massachusetts Mass Care, which uh, was actually the blueprint for the ACA and the ACA became legislation. So this was like well over 20 years of trying to pass some sort of healthcare reform, but it took the right time the right moment in time and the right tolerance in the culture to get it passed. So, um, that's usually what a sleeper effect is. But in this case, uh, these marijuana, this marijuana bill passed finally, and, um, they were able to start accepting applications in October with the first 20, um, entities being awarded their prospective licenses, um, in November. Uh, so, I think of note, ten of those applicants who were accepted for their pro- their prospective licenses were from the social equity programs. Um, so social ap- they were social equity applicants basically, which is um, the definition of, for Nevada of social equity. And I think most. States who are doing cannabis friendly laws are following this same definition. If you live in a state that does not follow this or you work for one of the bureaus of enforcement for marijuana or cannabis laws, please let me know. Um, I will be more than happy to make that correction. But I believe there most of them are following this similar definition, which is basically uh, to be a social equity applicant, one or more of the owners need to come from communities that were historically marginalized and penalized during the war on drugs. Um, And so that's like one step basically in correcting this um, history of marginalization and over penalization for minor drug offenses, basically. Um, So Another thing to note about this, and and you're probably saying, well, why so little for the whole state of Nevada? And and honestly, most of them, when I was looking at the list, most of them fell in Clark County and Clark County basically is Henderson, Nevada and Vegas. I'm sure there are other cities in there, but those are the two major ones that I'm aware of. And it makes sense because it's touristy. Um, But uh, you're probably thinking like, why only 20 entities? Like, why only 20 licensees? And the reason is, uh, basically... Unlike many other types of businesses in Nevada, Nevada does cap the number of licenses awarded for any particular type of cannabis business. So, for example, the number of retailers of cannabis products has a cap; there can only be so many of those, or only so many businesses in the state of Nevada can hold manufacturing or growing lic- or cultivation licenses. So that's uh, their their interesting role. And this is uh, and according to the Nevada Independent. Um, which is a paper located in Nevada. Uh, These legal establishments are expected to positively impact tourism and entertainment in Nevada by providing a place for legal public consumption. Wow. Yeah. Um, So, I mean, I don't know when they'll move from perspective to fully licensed. I imagine it will depend on, Um, them following a number of codes and laws to open their establishment, similar to like when somebody gets like a liquor license for their establishment. I'm sure that it's more stringent um, because of the nature of the business. And there's still a lot of stigma around cannabis consumption, especially public consumption. But I would expect that in 2023, we would see some of these establishments actually open their doors. And I'm going to Again, watch this very closely because it's going to be really interesting um, to see not just the economic impact of the policy. So we know that it's going to have some effect on their economy because Nevada relies on tourism. That's that's it's huge for them. It's like Hawaiian tourism. It's it's a huge deal. It's a huge business. People go to Vegas to have a great time. Sorry, I got thirsty. (laughs) They do. I mean, um, I live here in Southern California and where I'm located at, it's a four hour drive to, to go to Vegas. When I lived in Northern California, it was a four hour drive to get to Reno. So I know a lot of people go for quick weekend trips, girls trips, boys trip, bachelor parties, bachelorette parties, um, just to enjoy the sights to gamble. So it is tourism dollars are huge. And so adding this to that, those tourism dollars is going to have a great economic impact to them, whether it's negative or positive, we'll find out later on. I am assuming it will be positive because it'll be more dollars in revenue for the state because of the taxation of the sales of cannabis products. But I'm also interested to see um, some of the criminal justice policy impact um, and how these things are going to be enforced. And you know that they're going to have to apply, there are laws, obviously, for cannabis and legal cannabis, there's a lot of laws and there's a but laws are just one aspect of policy. Um, Laws are how you enforce policy or one of the mechanisms to enforce policy. But then we also know that laws can be different in writing than in practical application. So you may have one thing on the books, but then enforcement is different. So it will be actually very interesting to see how this plays out in the future. Um so I'm going to keep an eye on that one. Uh I'll probably pop into our friends at the Nevada Independent just to see if there's any news on those opening anytime soon as the year progresses. And that's it for quick bites. So now we're on to our main policy topics. You guys have probably heard a lot of this on the news. I am not gonna get into it like the news sources are. I am just gonna cover this so that way you understand what is being covered in this bill. I'm not gonna get into the whole detail of the bill because these omnibus packages are a lot. I, and I know that there is a lot of pork in there, a lot of pork, because this was a bipartisan bill that, that came from the Senate and had to go through the House. And, you know, typically, in the past, the Senate tends to be a little bit more moderate um, in their positions because if you think about it, a Senator has to get a whole state of people behind them whereas a House Representative may only have to get their district behind them and and everybody knows that districts can be like states can be very different from district to district um just here in california we have some areas that are very conservative and we have other areas that are very liberal so the constituency looks different so you have a different constituency in some place like san francisco than you do in some place like fresno you have a different consist constituency in some place like Los Angeles, and you do here in Riverside County, or San Bernardino County, or even Orange County, which are all very conservative areas. Um, And of course, the demographics are shifting, but that's neither here nor there. Um, It's just that these things can be different. So usually you would expect the Senate to be able to come to better compromise, but we have not seen that in a little while, have we? So, uh, well, luckily, just in time to avoid the shutdown. And days before they were set to adjourn for their winter break, they passed a 1.7 billion, or I'm sorry, trillion dollar budget. And all that's left is a signature from the executive branch. Um, It was passed with a vote of 225 to 201 in the House. Uh, And and it's important to know, I did not say the Senate had a vote because the Senate originally voted on the bill. It went to the House for approval, so it kind of worked. You know, typically you're thinking it goes House and Senate, then executive branch. Uh, in this case, it was the Senate that voted on it, created, and then the they had to send it back to the House so the House would get their chance to vote on it. And now it's going up to the president for his signature. Um, and this has to be a relief for both parties, honestly, uh, because this was... Accomplished before a, a new session began. Um, I must say that the new congressional session begins January 3rd. Um, yeah, so that's January 3rd, 2023, is when it begins. And at that time, the House will have a Republican majority and the Senate will still have a Democratic majority. In fact, they have a one majority, so um, they do not have to worry so much about. Um, passing bills along a narrow, narrow, narrow majority. I mean, they would still be narrow, but it's better to have 51 than 50, because then obviously you have to have the vice president be your tiebreaker. Um, But in the House, it's it's probably more so dealt felt with relief because as of the time of this recording, the position of House Speaker is very contentious It is very well contested traditionally in the past we would say Kevin McCarthy is a lock however members of his party are indicating that they don't necessarily want to vote for him to be speaker of the house um so his role is very it's still uncertain uh it would be I would be shocked if he doesn't eventually pull his party together enough to get the votes just based off of history um but we'll see what happens um so yeah yeah but anyway, if we are going to look at the fact that we know it is not good for either party to have a shutdown, but we do look at the Republican Party and and probably their relief over passing the bill, despite the spin that they're putting out there. Um, we can just look in recent history at the recent government shutdowns. So notably... The longest one in history occurred during the 2018 to 2019 year of Congress. So there was a 35-day shutdown from December 2018 to January 2019. um, And that resulted in a furlough of federal workers. So there were plenty of people who just did not have to go to work and could not get paid um, because they were considered non-essential. And uh, most of them were civilians. So, I mean, this shutdowns really hurt people's pockets. And posturing to keep to have the shutdown is not a good thing, because you're really impacting people's livelihoods, people's ability to pay rent, to buy food for their families. I mean, it's, it's, it's more than just political posturing at that point. But according to the Congressional Budget Office, in their report, the shutdown impacted the national economy to the tune of approximately 11 billion US dollars. And that, excludes any indirect costs that could not be easily quantified. Um, and then prior to that, in that same year, there was a shutdown in January, 2018, and then another in 2013, that is literally just the last decade. That's just 10 years. And I want to make it clear that before we say it's because of a president or a, you know, because of the president, the president doesn't really have much to do with the budget process. And these shutdowns, and this is why I think Republicans might actually be very happy about this budget passing, um, is because these last shutdowns were under the Republican watch. So the Republicans had majorities. So you would think more get done, but honestly it didn't apparently. Um, so, but either way. It was not a good look because it meant that both sides were not coming to the table in good faith to pass an actual budget to keep the government open. So I want to say that Congress... Holds the purse strings. We all know that Congress controls the purse strings. They are the legislative branch, but they also control what our government spending priorities are. Um, and the president has little to do with actual budget deliberation. So it doesn't matter if it's a Republican president, or a Democratic president. It doesn't matter who's in who's in the presidency. What the president does is they release a budget, which is their like it's think about it as like <clears throat> you're in a you're in a company, right? And your CEO. Release takes all this information from all the different departments and says, okay, this is the budget. So this is what we're asking for. Well, your board still has to approve that, right? Your board still has to approve the operating expenses for the company for the year. And they have the ability to say no, no, You're not getting this. You're not getting that. Oh, no, you're not getting this. You know, or, oh, you need to reduce headcount, blah, 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 blah. You have like, it is not a set thing. So the president is basically there to he releases his his budget, which is basically his wish list. Think of it as a, you know, it's like a Christmas. list. This is all the things he thinks that need money and how much he believes they need. And this can be based off of uh, the president's platform or administration's, um, like basically what the administration's priorities are. And so then Congress can take that into account and they will actually go through the budget and they will call it. They will add things to it. They will do what they want. And the role of the executive branch in this process is largely to influence. So they're just trying to persuade Congress to fund their agenda, basically. And it doesn't always work. So the bottom line here, shutdowns, bad for both parties. They look bad. And it's really a quantifiable and realistic like sign that the government is not, or at least the legislative branch, is not functioning as it should. I should stop saying the government because the government is made up of more than just um, Congress. It is made up of bureaucrats who you know, have to carry out these policy agendas and run the departments that we need, like HHS and, and um, you know, like Medicaid and Medicare and all those things and Social Security and Veterans Affairs. So um, I am going to stop using government when I say that. I, what I mean is the legislators are not working the way they are. And it's a sign of political dysfunction. Like they're just not coming to the table in good faith. And it's, it is so important to know that a lot of these lawmakers especially the ones that have been there for a long time in their personal lives they're friends so it's not like they're adversaries all the time they may be on like the opposite sides politically but they're qu- they a lot of them have the same social circles or are actually quite good friends um one of the things that was really important during Biden's campaign for presidency was that people thought he could get things done because it is a known fact that he and Mitch McConnell, since their days in Congress together and the Senate together, have been friends for a long time. How that's played out, we, you know, McConnell's been in the minority this whole time, so we can't really see how that has, how that would have impacted things. But I I, I don't, I think it does help sometimes. Behind closed doors, those things do help. Um, but in front of like what we're saying, you know, what they see, it's different. So when they can't come to a, a agreement, that usually is a sign that there are just too many agendas that are being put afford, like ahead of national interests. And um, some of these are talking points and, and it, it's bad. It's just really bad. And it could be anything from their constituency agendas, their lobbyists' agendas, party platform agendas and priorities, literally anything. We will never know the full scope <laughs> of what makes a lawmaker make the decisions they make because to be honest, there are just so many different motivators uh, once you're actually in op- um, the office. So as I was saying, this omnibus bill is actually the result of compromise in both parties um, in both houses. And we have noticed that there is some spin. I happen to catch some, um, headlines in MSNBC. I've seen some headlines in, on Fox news. I've seen some headlines, um, just, you know, in in like CNN. Um, and so we have started noticing that there has been some spin occurring through social media and the regular news media, um, from politicians who are releasing sound bites, releasing, um, statements, releasing interviews about the budget things. And basically the reason why we're seeing this spin is because of, they are trying to appeal to an arm of policymaking influence known as living room politics. So living room politics are basically, they're appealing to you and me, uh, Joe and Jane voter basically. And, um, They want us to basically think that they're doing what they should be doing and that they're fighting for us or that they are really looking out for us. And they're not giving us what really happened behind closed doors because they're giving us the talking points, the things that they think that their voters or their base want to hear. Um, And it's just all noise at this point. And we can discuss living room politics in another episode, because it is actually very fascinating to understand how living room politics can also play an influence in how public policy gets made. I know that oftentimes we think about like shadow groups, lobbyists, we forget that living room politics matters. Media perception, public perception does matter. Um, But I am not going to wade into the partisan waters about this one way or the other, I am going to avoid that, particularly around the talking points for the deficit. Because the US deficit is actually something that's really complex, it is not necessarily like we're in debt, or anything like that. Um, and talking about deficits and the funding of government is something that has to be its own episode, uh, on its own to do justice. And I think I would actually have to bring in an economist to talk about that because I don't think I would do it ju- the justice. I could research it, but I don't think I would do it the justice as somebody who's more well-versed with it. Um, but if it is something you're interested in letting me know, I can find someone who is an econ- who is a noted economist to come in and talk about it. Um, but it's it's just it's just something that comes up a lot because most people do not understand what the national deficit means um, or what versus having a national surplus. And I will say that the deficit is not the result of any one party's decision making. It is the part it is the result of many parties decisions and on both sides Um, that tends to reduce the amount of funding available to the government. Um, But they use it as like this big scary thing because it sounds scary to the base. And sometimes when people vote out of fear, they're not voting from a rational place. Because one of the things that I think with the media training that a lot of politicians have, to know how to stick to talking points and to say the right things. I think that they have figured out the one thing that we as people do not want to admit, which is that humans are not rational. We are very emotional creatures. We like to think of ourselves as rational, but we are very emotional. And when we're scared, we often don't make great decisions. And so we hear big, scary words. We don't quite know what they mean. We may end up in an echo chamber looking up for a thing or looking up a concept that we don't really understand the concept of and making a a snap judgment based off of something that we do know that we can kind of compare it to when it may be more complex than that. So I think we all do this. We all do this. Um, And I think that they have figured out how to exploit that, honestly, Um, and use these big, scary free, free words to spend, to create spend. Um, and there's little substance behind the spin, honestly. So <clears throat> that being said, um, the Omnibus bill, it's not really the thing that created the deficit in the first place. Uh, it is necessary to spend these dollars to keep our government open and to keep um, people working. And um, we need to actually really look realistically and have realistic discussions on How do we fund the coffers? Like, I'm sorry, but that actually, that funding the government, the mechanism by which we fund the government is taxes. It is. And somewhere along the line, Americans went, I don't want to pay my fair share. And that's fine because it's it's gotten to the point where it's just very convoluted what a fair share is. So I think that if we want to talk about government funding, and we want to talk about deficits versus surpluses, we also need to talk about taxes. And that is not a fun topic for anybody. Um, but it also, if we don't talk about taxes, then we and we keep talking about deficits and making it sound like this big scary thing, we are enabling political agendas that set out to cut popular social programs like Social Security. I mean, everyone wants to say Social Security is in debt. Social Security is not in debt. Social Security is a program that is paid for by you and me as as workers, as taxpayers. It comes out of our paychecks um, and it supports the older generations. And then when the idea is that when we become older, we will have Social Security income that we are entitled to based off of how many years we worked and what our earnings were during that period. Um, One of the problems with Social Security, though, has been that the government has borrowed money from Social Security and has not paid it back, which is making it insolvent. Um, So it is not in and of itself an insolvent program. Uh, But again, (laughs) this is one of those more complex topics that needs its own show, really, if we really want to talk about that. But my last little note on funding is literally we cannot talk about deficits or surpluses in a vacuum we have to talk about it in relation to taxes because taxes are the mechanism by which we fund government and all of our social programs so if you're wondering how long this bill will last, it will go until September 30th because the fiscal year in the federal government is October 1st through September 30th. Um, what is actually included? Let me check my nifty notes. Um, so we did, we did give 45 billion in aid to Ukraine as it continues to fight Russia, um, and try to stave off Russian attacks. And that whole situation just geopolitically is, is heartbreaking. Uh, my, husband is a teacher and, ha- and he happens to work at a school with a lot of international students and one of his students is Ukrainian and their parents and family are all in the Ukraine and they have not been able to speak to their family since this has begun and so this is a high school kid. I think he I think my husband said he was about 16. I think he was 16. Anyway, so his grades have suffered this year because he's not been able to get into contact with any of his family members. So imagine being in a foreign country because it is literally the safest place for you to be. So your parents scrape all their money together, send you to school here um, at a boarding school. And then War breaks out in your home country and you can't reach your family. You don't know what's happening to them. And then with all the news that's coming out about um, the bombing, the constant bombings, the finding of mass graves, all of the the essay, um, the assaults, the, the just the murder and mayhem. Um, and you can't get a hold of your family so this is like very realistic I mean for some of us this is not something that we can fathom because we have not had a war on American soil in a very long time um but for other people this is very real this is very real this is very visceral so beyond the rhetoric um $45 Forty-five billion dollars in aid was given to Ukraine to help their efforts to fight off the Russian attacks. Um, Eight hundred billion was allocated for domestic spending, and that represents an increase of nine percent from last year's budget. So there was an increase in domestic spending, and then part of that was forty-one billion marked specifically for disaster relief. So that's that's like. The disaster releases like FEMA and things like that, um, of that nature, the FEMA programs, because this is and this is becoming especially critical now that we're starting to see longer, drier summers, more powerful and frequent hurricanes, prolonged drought and fire seasons and deadlier tornadoes. So people are literally feeling the impacts of climate change and it is causing more natural disasters. So having more money earmarked for, earmarked for disaster relief is critical because NGOs, which are non-government organizations, um, charity groups like you know, Red Cross and things like that, they cannot do it. They, they cannot physically do it all. The, the government, our government has to do its part, our legislators have to allocate money. And so this is good that they've earmarked money for this. Um, also bipartisan election reforms, uh, were a part of this omnibus bill. I know some people are not happy about this, but it was like absolutely necessary. And the statement was, is it was to prevent another insurrection, like the deadly insurrection on January 6th, 2021. And I just remember watching that and thinking, oh my God, there is a coup at the Capitol. Like I... Did not think in my lifetime I would see that. And that was just something that I think will stick with me for the rest of my life, just like 9-11 did. Um, so uh, the election reforms are absolutely necessary. And specifically, they have written legislation that reforms the formerly vaguely written Electoral Count Act that was passed in 1887, signed into law by Grover Cleveland, and then codified in 1948 under the U.S. Code. Um, And it clarifies the role, role of the vice president. So part of what led to that insurrection was the belief that Mike Pence could basically throw out electoral college votes and appoint a president. And that was not something that most scholars and law experts agreed on. Uh, they, they they thought that the Constitution did not allow for that. Um, but there were some who supported it, which is why we had the insurrection. Um, and it clarifies that the role of the VP is purely ceremonial. So that basically, it's spelled out that The vice president is basically just there for the ceremony. They don't have any real power in the Electoral College Count Act. Um, They also uh, specify some other details and I'm going to do a whole nother episode where I talk about the reform because this one is very interesting and it's a very good example of how we have to make policy and legislative changes to match the situation basically. Um, The constitution is a great framework that was what it was intended to be. And the whole point of amendments and writing legislation is to enhance it as our times have changed. So basically this is, this whole thing was to avoid unscrupulous actors who are trying to exploit, who were trying to exploit the vague language. Um, and I will be uploading that episode in the very near future. Probably I think episode two, um, also, a uh, provision pushed by Senator Josh Hawley of Missouri was included, which is the banning of TikTok on government devices. I know that this is just a tiny, tiny part of a discussion that's being had in certain groups of lawmakers about whether or not to ban the app completely um, due to its ties to China. And our relationship with China is very complicated, both politically and economically. And I suspect a lot of countries also fall into that boat because of the business that they do with China. Um, we have a very complex symbiotic relationship where we basically have we overlook the bad things because we do so much business with China and we have to maintain good benefits and our good relationships to maintain the benefits with that country. Um and if we were to cut ties with the Chinese with the Chinese it would be detrimental to our economy and among other things um so this is really one of those this is really one of those really interesting intersections of technology and culture and economic policy and domestic policy and foreign policy all just kind of like getting wrapped up into this nice little ball if this was dr Who, we say timey-wimey and we can't say timey-wimey it's like bally ball ball thing of complexity um and i think that we would have to do a lot of study and have some very bright people tell us about the whole the benefits as a whole uh and and i know that people say well we shouldn't buy products from china well it's more than just buying products from China. Like, for example, we will harvest raw materials and send them to China or Indonesia or some other Asian country and then have them refine the materials, send them back. And then we build whatever we want to build with those materials. So it's 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 a very like it is more it's more than just buying products from China. Um, also, China actually holds a lot of our debt as a nation. So complicated. It's complicated. But it will be interesting to see how this whole thing plays out with uh, TikTok at least, if if it's going to be eventually banned because of data harvesting process. That's the main concern is data harvesting practices. But um, one could argue that other social media companies such as Facebook, they're in the Uh, Facebook is dying, I know this, or Instagram, or um, uh, I'm trying to think of something else, Twitter, but you know, Twitter's on its death nails too. Uh, They're all gathering information on us all the time and harvesting them and selling it. So I mean, there's some very interesting things there to see. Uh, We'll see. We'll see what happens with that one. Um, There's also an increase in spending to federal law enforcement with the Justice Department getting a 10% boost to their budget this year. Um, Congress added more to the budget of the Bureau of Prisons to improve turnover at their agency. So they're having a hard time keeping correctional officers, COs. Um, and they didn't just give the money to the Bureau of Prisons and say, hey, you need more people. Like, here you go. Here's an extra 10% more to manage the you know facilities plus hire new people. Now, they are actually requiring that there is some oversight over what the Bureau of Prisons are doing with this. So, um, specifically that the Bureau of Prisons has to report back to Congress on their recruiting efforts. And they also have to conduct a review of current correctional officer pay, um, and, and the pay grades and pay levels and, uh, get input on that. So that, that's going to be a good one. At least they, if they gave them more money, but they gave them, some oversight with that one. And then bad news for the already understaffed and possibly underfunded IRS, they received a budget cut. (sighs) Poor guys, Uh, poor IRS agents. Uh, So if you're one of those people who has to call in to their customer service center during tax season um, for assistance, your wait times, I'm sorry to tell you, are likely to increase. Um, Congress did give a justification that this was part of the, they felt that there was a reduced need for funding due to the department modernizing. And however, like most things, it's gonna be a slow process. Uh, so I'm hoping, I am I think most taxpayers would probably be hoping that they have learned from administering programs like the expanded child tax credit um, that required an online portal to navigate or like the COVID impact payments. Um, and that will help them get through the change in the modernization and digitization of the agency much smoother. Um, of course this cannot be taken in a vacuum when you also consider that the IRS, uh, I think it was just a day or two before the budget passed, uh, they announced that they would be deferring the $600 transaction reporting requirements from apps like Venmo and PayPal until after the 2023 tax season. So um, basically, you won't have to report those payments for those transaction payments for in 2022's tax returns, but you will probably have to report them on 2023 unless they kick that out further. Um, it, it could just be that they just don't have the manpower for it. That's just my speculation. The IRS has said nothing about that. Or it could be that they haven't had time to adequately address their FAQs on the matters for taxpayers to be able to, um, process their, or rather, um, submit their returns in a timely manner. Um, and then fund is funding previously agreed upon, uh, based off of legislation like honoring our pact act, which increases veteran benefits and the chips and science act, which invests money in technologies that have been identified as key, uh, was added to the bill. And then there are new incentives within that bill for retirement savings. Um, there's a lot in there. I will uh, link to the House Appropriations Committee webpage on it. They have very, very convenient one pagers uh, from each of the departments, like Department of Agriculture, all that kind of stuff, who are impacted by the budget, where they explain what's going to that department and what it's supposed to be earmarked for. Um, So if you're interested in seeing all of it, or just a particular area of interest, like say you're really interested in the VA, um, you can go click those one pagers and check it out. Um, But what I did want to point out is that what was noticeably absent is the continuation of the expanded child tax credit. I know many American families were really hoping that that would make it in there. And honestly, this was a COVID era era relief policy that was once it was administered, it was very widely approved of by Americans, regardless of political party affiliation. So whether you were independent, whether you were um, Democrat or Republican, most Americans approved of it because it seems like the idea one of for one thing, we had, um, a child tax credit, the expanded child tax credit increased the age of eligible children up to age 17 and also gave you an advance on that. So you got cash in your pocket every month, um, for at least half of it. And I think that was very popular. Um, and there were so many studies conducted during and after the benefits, um, By economists and social scientists, and they showed that it was actually very beneficial to the economy. It did not, people did not decrease the amount that they worked, um, and that it was very successful in alleviating childhood hunger and poverty when combined with other programs. Um, I think this one might experience what Wilinsky once said and pointed out that lawmakers do that even when the social science makes sense or the social policy makes sense rather than making a decision that may or may not be popular they just kick it down the road and say we need to look into it uh so it gets stuck in the more research category which is unfortunate because this one was actually very very popular and seemed to do a lot of good and based off of all the research that was conducted in all the studies that were published um, in peer-reviewed papers, academic papers. It was very, very effective. It did what it needed to do. It it was a relief. So that was that. Anyway, there are a ton of show notes for that topic. I will link them all at the end of this episode, you will see them in the show notes. Um, And that is actually it for today's episode. Let me know if you want me to do a complete analysis on the expanded child tax credit and why it can be considered a successful program. And I hope you found this at least informative. Uh, This one, probably not as interesting because of, you know, we're talking about omnibus bills. Omnibus bills, less interesting. Um, But it's light on actual legislation because at the time of this recording, Congress has gone for their winter break. Um, So there's not a whole lot of legislation going on at the moment. And if you want to be alerted to new episodes, if you're listening on your podcast platform of choice, follow or subscribe. And if you're watching on YouTube, you know, click the bell, hit the like, all those YouTube things. Um, And refer a friend if you think that they could benefit from this uh, podcast at any point or any one topic. So whatever you feel like doing, I would appreciate it. And I hope that you will join me next time. Bye bye.